Hello, and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. This is your host, Danielle. This is episode number 6.5, the fifth episode in our series on the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Brian first discusses the biodiversity of the park with Paul Super, the research coordinator of the Appalachian Highlands Science Learning Center. Then Brian speaks with Chris Johnson about the health of the forest, including invasive species and what visitors can do to protect the forest. Please do not bring firewood from outside of the park. Before we get to the conversation, if you enjoy listening to Everybody's National Parks, please tell your friends and consider supporting our work through Patreon. Just go to our website, everybodysnationalparks.com, and click on Support the Show. Thank you for listening. Now for this week's discussion on the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. I'm here with Paul Super. He is the research coordinator for the Appalachian Highlands Science Learning Center, which is over in Purchase Knob within uh, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Hi, Paul. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing okay. Before we get to our topic at hand, which is the biodiversity of the park, can you tell us a little bit about the Appalachian Highland Science Learning Center, where you work? Uh, We're a program that was created almost 20 years ago to try to bring more science into not just Great Smoky Mountains National Park, but we work with uh, three other parks, Blue Ridge Parkway, Big South Fork, Wild Scenic River, and National River and Recreation Area. We're trying to bring more researchers into these parks to address issues that the the park needs more information on and get that information out to as wide an audience as possible. In some cases, it may be appropriate to bring members of the public in to help collect data as citizen scientists. In some cases, incorporate some of what's learned and some of the processes into school field trips that are curriculum-based or get things out in a public colloquium. However, just to make sure that the information is not thrown into a file cabinet somewhere and then forgotten about and 20 years down the line, we need more information about this topic and we have it, but no one remembers. Just before we delve in, you sent us a website, which we'll put in our show notes here, which is basically a species mapper of the park, which I've been having a lot of fun this morning playing with. Yes. You can look up a species, both flora, fauna, you can compare it to another species and kind of see where it resides in the park, which is just a load of fun. That was a nice tool to have. And so kind of the opposite of uh, in a file cabinet somewhere, it's right there on the World Wide Web for one to see and even, uh, you know, maybe even plan out your trip. That's a nice tool that uh, I wish we knew about before we went down the first time, but we'll certainly have it in hand the next time we go. And we're working on trying to improve that. You know, ultimately, we would like to be able to design it so that uh, park visitors can look for, you know, where is a hot spot this time of year to look for birds? Where is a hot spot to look for tardigrade or whatever organism they're they're interested in in knowing more about? Where would they look in the park? And we are already using that species mapper to help us predict where we would find certain species, such as the ash trees, the green ash and the white ash. We've recently found a exotic beetle species, the emerald ash border, that is lethal to these trees, and we want to know where these two species of tree are, are distributed throughout the park. This species mapper will help us to locate places to monitor for the emerald ash borer and to possibly treat the ash trees. Right. I mean, just randomly, I have, and Danielle's a birder here, so I have the American goldfinch up. 
And, you know, on an overlay of the park, it has a nice pink color, which shows you the density uh, in various shades of pink, I guess, where the goldfish is located. So a scientific tool, a tourist tool, and something that is pretty comprehensive, but probably leads into our topic at hand that it gives you a sense of scale of the immense biodiversity the park has. Not the biggest park in the national park system, but this is a pretty big park, Paul. So do you want to just talk about the different habitats of the Smokies? We'll start and talk just general ecosystem of, you know, what's what's kind of the 30,000 view of what we're looking at in terms of the of the park and how we should think about it? Well, you're right. We're not the largest park uh, in the system, but we're right up there in the, the largest park in the eastern U.S. And we cover a very large swing of elevation. You know, folks out west often talk about, oh, we've got tall mountains, you've got hills, but we start from a much lower elevation. So the elevational range that's encompassed by this park is quite substantial. We have you know, dry pine oak savannas at low elevations in the western part of the park and spruce fir cloud forests, the very highest elevation. It's very reminiscent of Canada, or I used to work at Acadia National Park in Maine, and the going up to the uh, top of our mountains reminds me of being up in Maine. So, you know, that's quite a range of different habitats, plus being a mountain range that connects with rain events, we get a lot of precipitation. We're borderline rainforest, and it produces a lot of growth, a lot of very large trees, uh, many national champion Size trees for different species, and uh, all that comes together to uh, create a lot of different habitats, which is what you need to have a lot of different biodiversity. Sure. Could you give us a sense of how many habitats there are, or is it is it innumerable in some regard? It depends on how you you cut the habitat <laughs> right, definition. Right. Uh, you know, the, every organism has its own habitat needs, and they're all going to be just slightly different from each other. I believe we have about, by some standards, about seventeen different forest types. Maybe you could make it smaller. We have the the spruce fir forest at the very top. We have hemlock forests at uh, Mid, or, mid and lower elevations that are disappearing in many parts of the park because of another introduced exotic insect, the hemlock woolly adelgid. We have rich cove habitat with you know, several dozen different trees, different tree species, many of them growing to immense sizes. We have northern hardwood forests, northern red oak and beech trees. So a lot of different sorts of habitat, but Exactly how many, just matter how you want to cut the pie. Right. And I guess it also leads into the dynamic nature of the park in terms of its interaction. I think with humans, not to overstate this, but I think in some of the parks out west, I guess think of Alaska, where generally speaking, some of those places have been untouched, maybe except for some native peoples. But you know, here in the east, Great Smoky Mountains National Park, you've had Native Americans, you've had settlers, you've had industry. And so you suddenly you have all these diverse habitats. And then on top of that, you have man kind of dynamic hand onto the park. So therefore, can you talk a little bit about that and that impact on the biodiversity of the park? Indeed, we have about a third of the park that was never intensively logged, was not in agriculture. Uh, so it's Essentially, old growth forest may have been selectively a 
cherry tree here or there taken out. But, you know, that said, that's two-thirds of the park that was logged or in agriculture. Some parts of the park may have been burned by the Native Americans to keep them open for wildlife purposes. And there are a lot of organisms that have come into the park because of human mistakes, such as the chestnut blight or the emerald ash borer, the hemlock woolly adulgia that I mentioned. And these have changed the species composition. We used to have in some of our habitats, about one out of every five uh, trees was a American chestnut. And now Mm -hmm. we have maybe 100, 200 individual trees throughout the whole park. Wow. We have exotic species that have been brought into the park or brought into the area immediately around the park and have been uh, coming in of their own, such as the European uh, hog or the brown trout, the rainbow trout, oriental bittersweet, all sorts of different plants and animals. And that changes uh, what we have here. To some extent, you could say that it increases our biodiversity because we have extra species from other parts of the world. But if they're taking out some of the species that are already here that uh, are depended on by many dozens of native species, that's not good. But you talked about the disturbance history that we have. The current management of the park is to try to let it mature. The trees are 70, 80 years old now in in places that were cut. The visitors hiking through the park will see a mostly forested environment. There's some species that we are just not going to be supporting. There's some types of biodiversity that we are just not going to support. For example, when the park was first created, our most abundant species of warbler, beautiful little small bird, brightly colored, the most abundant species was the golden wing warbler. And that's a species that comes in to disturbed habitat, often just as a log forest is starting to regrow. And right now we have maybe one singing male each spring in the whole park because we don't have that kind of habitat. So there are other areas that are going to have to support some of these, what we would call early successional species, maybe better in a national forest where they do have uh, cycles of logging to support the timber industry or wood need. But we're going to be supporting the biodiversity, the species that need long-term, old, mature forests. It's still a lot of species that we have on our list. Right. And as you were talking about the warbler, uh, Danielle, who's a birder, just made a very sad face, but we understand. You know, this is a, uh, it's an ongoing project. We've been impressed in, in some of these interviews, and including this one, is the amount of management that the Park Service or I'm sure the Appalachian Highlands Science Learning Center are, are taking to, uh, to manage the park. And it's a very thoughtful process in, in a lot of ways and something that no one's taking lightly. So, you know, there seems to be a pretty big focus on these conservation efforts without giving this short shrift because, uh, look, this topic could be a college course and, and, you know, we could be here all semester. But I did want to toggle over to, you know, wildlife. So, you know, your average visitor, um, you know, they, they, they come to the park and look, they're looking forward to seeing some animals, including bears. What are some of the other likely wildlife that a visitor could see? And what are some of the tips that you may have for seeing that wildlife? Well, the 
average visitor is usually interested in things that are big and easy to see because uh, they're impressive. And I enjoy seeing a bear as much as anybody. <laughs> yeah. um, and typically you're going to encounter a bear uh, in a place where you can see an open area and when there's a lot of food, such as Kate's Cove. A lot of people go to Kate's Cove to look for bears, particularly when the blackberries are in season or the black walnuts are, are ripe or the cherries are ripe. We also brought elk back to the park, restored a species that had been absent for about 100 years or more. So places that have a, an open vista are often better for seeing large wildlife. They have fewer places to hide. You have a broader expanse so you can see them further away. But you know, we have all kinds of little critters, and you know it is just a lot of fun to spend a little time in a creek and, and just look real close. One of the things I like to do with my two children is just go into uh, one of the streams and, and look for natural little rock pools and wait patiently by it and see the, the little tiny crayfish that come out or the salamanders or, or aquatic insects. Yeah. You know, you don't even have to turn over rocks. Just wait and see them. They'll come out. Find a place that you like in the woods and just plop yourself down on the ground and start looking around. Make sure there's no poison ivy there. Of but make sure that just look around on the ground and see things crawling over the mosses. And you'll, you'll be seeing some of the, the biodiversity that's out there. You might see species that we don't realize are there yet or that uh, are new to science. We've we've already added some almost uh, a thousand species that uh, are brand new to science since we've been focusing on biodiversity in the park. Well, that's amazing. You know, here we are, North Carolina, Tennessee. Uh, this isn't the wilds of Papua New Guinea, and we're still discovering species. That's pretty impressive. And we're so close to so many different research institutes. People have been studying the biodiversity here since the 1800s, and we're still finding new stuff. It, it is pretty cool. Right. Uh, but I don't want to let this go because uh, I thought you slid in a very, very good tip I want to highlight. I, I kind of teed you up a little bit because, of course, the bears are the, the superstars of the park. But uh, I thought that was a very great tip to sit quietly and, in, in your case, you know, sit by a stream and, and look for the crayfish. But sit quietly and look for the biodiversity and the other wildlife because... Uh, there's so much, and so much gets overlooked. And if you sit quietly, one, and I thought this was a nice tip, you put it indirectly, you get to enjoy the park and repose and quiet as well. And I thought that was a very nice tip as well, and, and, and one that uh, we're, we're going to take down and use ourselves. So that was, that was a very good thing. And so I, I appreciated that very much. What, what's one of the more elusive animals in the park. So the one that uh, when you are lucky enough to see, you know you've had a lucky day. And I guess that, that also probably bleeds into what are some of the more threatened animals in the park? Well, a lot of the animals in the park are elusive, at least from our perspective. They're not really necessarily trying to not be seen, but they're certainly not trying to be seen. Many of them are nocturnal. So unless you're fortunate around your campsite, you or hiking during an overcast day, you might not see a bobcat, or we get very excited when we hear reports of spotted skunks. They seem to be uh, fairly rare in the southern mountains. It's a species that people more normally think of as being out west in the desert. There's a population of spotted skunks here in the southeast, and every once in a while, 
you know, one will show up on a trail and the visitor will send us a photograph and we get very excited about that. We have about 40 species uh, that are endemic to the park and they're probably not in too much danger since uh, they're in a protected place, but they're small range, hard to find. We have you know, over 200 species of birds that have been recorded in the park. Most of us have only seen half that because a lot of them are, are just passing through. So yeah. you get rare species for the park may just be rare in this part of the world. Right. By the way, the bobcat is my holy grail. That's the one uh, I've I've never seen in the wild. And it'll be a great day when whenever I and that's going to be a tough one. To, that's going to be a tough nut to crack, but that's that's on my list if I can ever see one in one of the parks. But I understand. So some of this is also they're just not on the same schedule as humans are, and they're inclined just not to hang around where humans are, unlike bears who seem to gravitate to where humans are in a lot of ways, naturally and unnaturally. So that's one of the keys is you know if you're really into seeing some of these more elusive species, you want to go where most of the rest of the population isn't. I work, my office is on top of a fairly new addition to the park called Purchase Knob, and it's a wonderful place to hike. One of the best views in the park. Whenever I'm there, we keep the gate open so that people can drive up. And if you're not good at hiking up two miles of steep road, drive up to it. But we close down at the end of October, and I still work up there occasionally. That's when I see the bobcats. When I'm driving home at the end of the day, and there haven't been people walking on yeah. the road, there's a bobcat walking down the road. And so, oh, you're still here? Drat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's mad at you. He gives you the he gives you the side eye for for sticking around, right? Exactly. You mentioned birds, and we'd be remiss because this is this is Danielle's passion. So I guess both ends same thing. What are some of the more easier, interesting birds to see, and then what are some of the more fleeting birds to see in the park? I, I just again on the website that we'll put the show notes on. It's pretty fascinating to look at the overlay here. What are some of your uh, favorites there? Well, some of the easiest ones for people to notice are our wild turkey that uh, are uh, in our open fields, but also in the woods. There's nothing quite like disturbing a turkey and seeing it take off this giant bird flying across a valley to get away from you. And rough grouse, folks in the south don't often get a chance to see rough grouse except for our higher elevations. And they'll sometimes be by the side of the road or you're hiking and you'll hear this very low pitch. And that's their courtship display. So those are two really obvious birds, in some ways obvious at least. Some of our least common species, again, Higher elevation species like pine siskin or red cross bill, not particularly rare species nationwide, but here in the southeast, fairly rare. And they move around following the, the cone crop. So one year you'll see them at Indian Gap, and the next year you know, they won't be there, but they'll be at Mount Sterling because there's better cone crop over there. There's some species that appear to be disappearing from the park. We used mm. to have a small number of olive-sided flycatchers nesting in the park, and we get very few reports of them nowadays. So we're not quite sure why they seem to be disappearing from the southern Appalachians, but uh, we're always interested in, in rare bird reports from park visitors. I'd wanted to ask you also about wildflowers as well. What are some wildflowers that 
that excite you that uh, a visitor may be able to see, and, and where about would they uh, would they be able to see them? And by the way, I, I guess I shouldn't put a thumb on the scale just for spring. You can probably give us some tips about uh, seeing flowers in a few seasons. So what are some of the basic tips you have for wildflower viewing? Wildflowers are found not just in the spring, but all throughout the year. Though we have some pretty spectacular displays in, usually in April, whole hillsides that look like they're dusted with snow because of our fringed facilia. Places like Porter's Flat near Greenbrier or just off of our main park road, uh, US 441. Uh, the uh, One of the cool things about uh, a mountainous park is our wildflower season progresses uphill. Uh, so if you miss the fringe facilia display at lower elevations, you can go to a higher elevation and see them. Uh, There are dozens of of hikes, uh, hiking trails in the park that will take you by good wildflowers. And there's even a wildflower pilgrimage event hosted in part by uh, the University of Tennessee system uh, that uh, people can come and go on guided walks to learn about wildflowers and other things in April, I believe. Oh, that's a great tip. They have a website. Wildflowers of, of different sorts are blooming at all times of year. And mid to late summer, we have beautiful red monarda, uh, wild bergamot, or oswego tea. It has lots of different names. It's a beautiful uh, uh, red plant that will grow in sunny spots alongside the road uh, along Pingman's Dome Road and uh, attracts hummingbirds, too. Recently, a team of amateur botanists uh, or retired botanists working in the park discovered about 22 species last year uh, that we did not know we had in the park, new species to the park of plants. Many of them were plants that bloomed in the fall. People just don't spend much time looking for wildflowers in the fall. They're all maybe not quite as spectacular as the fringe facilia display, but you know, they're out there. So again, you'll never know what you find until you start exploring in the park. Right. Which is, that's my big takeaway from our conversation. So just, and you mentioned this offhandedly, and I should have dug in on this. When you talked about the new species that are being discovered, what excited you the most when you, when you found a new species of plant, animal, bug, whatever the case may be, what, what got you pretty excited in terms of what that meant to the story of the biodiversity of the park? Well, a lot of the, uh, you know, we want to know everything that's out there. We want to know where our uh, rare populations are so that we can help protect them better. A lot of the new species, the rare species, maybe they're not going to be giant and, and impressive, but they're still an important part of the ecosystem. And some of our uh, new to science species are actually fairly common and widespread and, and easy to see. There's a lichen species that was just recently described, brand new to science, that a lichenologist in the New York Botanical Garden found that makes kind of a white paint on a lot of faces in the park. And just knowing it, spent the time to to figure out what is making that white paint. And sure enough, it was a new species, undescribed species. Some of the species brand new to the park and fun for me because they were found by uh, high school students, young folks. You know, I was having a conversation with a couple of fly specialists and a high school intern on the porch of our office building up at Purchase Knob. And this big black and red beetle falls right in front of us. And so the high school intern catches it and keys it out. Turns out it had never been found in the park before. Wow. 
And so, you know, that kind of discovery experience that a student can take part in is, is what really excites me. Well, that's great. So this could be you. You don't have to have a double PhD. You could be a high school sophomore and this could be you. You could discover a, a brand new species in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. That's pretty exciting. And you might be able to discover a brand new one in your own backyard. That's or a, a good park point. Close to you. So it's, it's not it's not just the biodiversity in the Smokies. It's right. the biodiversity that we all live in. Yeah, nature doesn't uh, nature doesn't pay attention to political boundaries, right? So that's that's it a very good not. point. It could be right in your backyard. Well, look, we could have spent an hour each on all these topics, but I have one last question. I think you've dropped some hints here. Get some clarity. So, so Paul, what are some of your favorite spots in the park? If you could uh, impart on us some of your your parts, uh, your your spots where you take your, you mentioned your kids, where you like to take your kids or where you like to go that maybe uh, not many people are aware of? Well, just about anywhere is is cool. I love Purchase Knob. It's not the easiest place. If there's not a park employee there, you need to pull off on the side of the road by the closed gate and you've got a two-mile hike up to the to the house, but the view is spectacular. There are any of our trails, if you make sure that you're well-equipped with water and, and food and layers of clothing and rain gear. If you hike you know, more than maybe two miles away from the trailhead, you're going to get away from where most people are, and you will have a wonderful opportunity to see the park by yourself at your own pace and just see what's there. I love to go out to high elevation site, you know, get off the AT, hike a little ways from Newfound Gap or Indian Gap or Clingman's Dome and just get away from the people a little ways and find a spot where I can look out over hills and, and just sit there. Maybe I'll be lucky and a raven will come by and do a barrel roll in front of me or yeah. some new insect that I've never seen will start crawling across my leg or, or who knows. Uh, uh, but uh, that's the sort of thing I like to do. And there's uh, innumerable spots in the park where you could do that. And can the can the public drop in on the um, on the learning center, or how, how would the public interact with the Appalachian Highlands Science Learning Center where you work? Most of what we do as a program is provide housing and services to visiting researchers, or to develop programs for middle school, high school, college classes, organized groups. So we don't really have a display. It's not a a visitor center up there, but our site is, uh, you can find it on a lot of websites. There's parking for maybe a dozen or eight vehicles off to the side. If there's a park employee up there, which is usually May through October, but not every day, we'll have the gate open. If you want to drive in the gate, you should stop up at the house and find out when the gate's going to close. So we don't have problems with trying to find you and we need to lock up. But the view is spectacular, and if you're up for the hike, it is is well worth doing. Well, you can tell I'm being totally self-serving because I'm going to come up there uh, at dusk and try to find that bobcat. So that's uh, that's why I wanted to ask the question. So Paul Super, Research Coordinator, Appalachian Highlands Science Learning Center. Paul, thank you so much for your time. What an education, and uh, we're excited to see you when we're down there. Sounds like a plan. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. You bet. That was Brian speaking with Paul Super, the research coordinator of the Appalachian Highland Science Learning Center, based at Purchase Knob in Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Now Brian speaks with Chris Johnson, supervisory forester at Great Smoky Mountains National Park. 
Chris and Brian speak about the biggest threats to the forest and what visitors can do and how her team is working to protect the forest. I'm here with Chris Johnson. She's a supervisory forester at Great Smoky Mountains National Park, where her responsibilities include forest insect, disease management, exotic plant control, and ecological restoration. Hi, Chris. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for taking time out to speak to us about uh, the forest health. I think we can sum this all up into. And as I was saying before we came on, I'm very interested in this because uh, I'd love to know more about this. I'd love to know more about surrounding trees and the parks that we're going into and kind of that uh, ecological interplay. Uh, And I don't know too much about it. So I think we'll start with, maybe we'll start with the bad news, if that's you. So what are some of the threats to the forest, not just trees, but the whole ecological the whole ecological interplay at Great Smoky Mountains National Park? The biggest threats that we have to the integrity of our native forests here are air quality, which is a whole other subject, and invasive species. So invasive species include insects, diseases, and plants. From my perspective, we also have invasive fish, invasive hogs, and various other invasive species in the park. But I deal with um, forest insects and diseases. So over the history of the park, we've had large-scale mortality of chestnut trees from the chestnut blight back in the early years of the park, the 30s through the 50s. In the late 60s, we found the balsam woolly adelgid, which is an invasive insect originating from Europe that infests the Fraser fir trees at the high elevation forests, where we only have three tree species, but we have some hope for the future regeneration of Fraser fern. In the mid-80s, we discovered dogwood anthracnose here in the park, and following that, uh, we have lost the majority of the dogwood trees in our moist north-facing slope. Around 1990, we found beech scale and beech bark disease, which moved here from the northeastern United States, but is European in origin. And because of that disease insect complex, we've lost a majority of the high elevation beech gaps, beech forests where beech grows in contiguous stands. Then in 2002, we found hemlock woolly adelgid here, just devastated hemlock through the mid-Atlantic and now spreading into the northeastern United States and south and southwest through Tennessee and Georgia. Uh, We've built a big program of treating hemlocks, which has been successful. We've treated hundreds of thousands of hemlocks. And a few years ago, we found emerald ash borer, which affects are two species of native ash, the green ash and white ash. That species is easily carried through firewood. So we've enacted firewood restrictions in hopes of reducing the incoming wood boring, invasive exotic wood boring species. So the next one that we expect to see here would be Asian longhorn beetle. We have not yet found that here, but it's known to travel in firewood and wood products, as does the emerald ash borer. That's kind of a rundown of the most devastating forest insects and diseases that we have here. Well, that sounds like a lot. That's actually pretty uh, pretty disconcerting. If we see trends of 
drought or warmer winters, then the Fraser fir will be stressed. The balsam willy adelgid will be more likely to infest them. And also, if if the environment is warmer at those high elevations, then other trees are will be adapted to living there. As it is now, if you look at our forest types, the spruce fir forest is kind of like going to Maine or some of the taller New England peaks. And then the northern hardwood forest at the next elevational band is kind of like what you would see in upstate New York, the northeastern states, and then the, below that, the cove hardwoods. And on the drier ridges, you might see more oak and hickory. And then at the lowest elevations, it's more like what you'd see in North Georgia or Alabama, more of a pine component. So those forest types are are there because of the the climate and environment to which those trees are adapted. So it's pretty amazing. You get a nice cross-section of eastern United States forests all within the park. You do. And a, another point to make with the, the diversity of forests is that there's a forest type in the Smokies that is pretty closely related to a forest type somewhere else in the world. So that if you have um, the Trans-Siberian forest where balsam woolly adelgid originated on spruce on fir trees, that had a pretty easy time adapting to the climate in um, the high elevations in the Smokies. Well, that's actually a nice segue into how are you combating a lot of these invasive species? Because just to get a sense of scale, for example, the hemlock, which is a tree near and dear to my heart. It's the woolly adelgid is affecting it even at home here in New York and mostly in upstate New York. But we know that through some of our state parks and how they're combating it. But they can because they're smaller and they can identify the trees. How are you going about, and I know you have limited staff power, how are you going about identifying these trees and then combating these trees in such a vast park? You know, you you mentioned some uh, just offhandedly, where some of these forest stands are in remote areas. How do you manage this? We've had good access to remotely sensed data. So in the beginning, we were working more from aerial photography. But of course, now we have good satellite imagery and LIDAR imagery. So we have a vegetation map of the park that we're continually improving. In fact, we're having a major revamp of it now, but we have mapped where the different forest types occur. So in the beginning of our hemlock treatment program in 2002, we looked at the the remotely sensed imagery and the maps that we had of where hemlock was dominant. So we actually made outlines around all the hemlock-dominated forests. And then we started scouting to see where the adelgid was present. And that was the basis for our reconnaissance of where hemlock is, a combination of remotely sensed data mapping and ground truthing. And then we looked at what our, our priorities should be, What what's the most important types of hemlock. We wanted to save as much of the old-growth hemlock as we could because we protect most of the old-growth hemlock that still exists. We also needed to protect uh, hemlocks in the developed areas to prevent hazard trees. So we've treated all of the hemlocks in the, the roadsides, picnic areas, campgrounds, 
cemeteries, many of the trails that go through hemlock-dominated forest in order to keep these areas open and accessible to visitors and safe to be in, as well as the aesthetics and the ecological benefits. So that was the basis of our program. We have conservation areas spread throughout the park to try to protect different genetic resources. So we didn't want to treat all the hemlocks in one area and forget about those on the other side of the watershed. So we've tried to protect genetic diversity by spreading our conservation areas out across the geographic extent of the park. It's a big job. How do you feel progress is going? Well, we've had good success with those trees that we have treated, and we've determined through some research partnerships that the the treatment interval can be as long as seven or eight years. So we don't expect to have a forest on life support forever. We hope that the introduced biological controls that we brought in, as well as genetic diversity and genetic resistance and overall a naturalization of an exotic pest, as you often see. If you're there in the Northeast, you're familiar with gypsy moth and how originally gypsy moth was just killing thousands and thousands of acres and we thought all was lost. But in in time, most exotic pests become naturalized and their populations are down to a level where a combination of predators, parasites, environmental genetic resistance can keep them at a less devastating level. So that's our hope in the long term. And we are pleased with the success we've had in treating hemlocks. We wish we could have gotten to all of them, but there are a lot of areas that are so steep and so difficult to access that it's the the trade-off, the cost-benefit analysis is just not in their favor. Are you, um, and pardon the ignorance, but are you worried that the biological solution, and could you maybe give some examples, are you ever worried that um, the cure would be worse than the disease in the the biological solution? How do you think that through? And, And what exactly are those biological solutions? So the the predator species that were introduced went through an extensive vetting process by the U.S. Forest Service research entomologists. They went to areas in Japan and China and the Pacific Northwest of the United States to see what was present on hemlock and specifically feeding on adelgids. So we were never interested in a general predator that ate everything smaller than it, such as the lady beetles that people have in their houses. There there are a lot of wish-we-had-known-better types of examples in the history of biological control, and most of those were generalist predators. The the predators that were introduced for hemlock woolly adelgids are specific to adelgids, and so in the absence of adelgids, they are not able to live. That's what they eat. They don't eat other things, so they're unlikely to become an epidemic of their on their own. I would love to talk a little bit more about some of the other species in the forest and not just focus on trees, but before that, you know, Chris, what do you think, as a visitor, what are some of the things that we could do to be helpful to prevent invasive species, you already mentioned, don't don't haul in your own firewood. What are some of the other things that we can do on our visit to um, Smoky Mountains National Park to make sure at the bare minimum we're not adding to the problem, or at a maximum, how can we help 
be part of the solution. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, on the other hand, we have uh, a number of exotic plant species that are able to survive in our various forest types and especially on roadsides and disturbed areas. So it's a great thing if people will pay attention to not bringing soil into the park on their tires or boots. We we have a number of garlic mustard sites that are in, at campsites and campgrounds that are pretty obviously somebody shook their tent out or knocked their boots off or got their bike out when they had just been up to like Indiana Dunes or someplace that has a lot of garlic mustard. So being aware of tiny seeds that could be brought in on camping equipment is a good thing to keep in mind. And of course, the firewood restrictions, I think, are important and important for people to know why. There's always the idea, and I used to do this myself, well, I've got all this wood here in the backyard ready for my fireplace. I think I'll I'll take that when I go camping in Georgia instead of buy something. But <laughs> that's, that's how things get moved around. Uh, another way things get moved around is through the, the nursery trade. So you want to work with your state nursery inspectors and make sure that the, the rules are followed and that the plants that are sold are appropriately vetted for any insects and diseases that they might have on them. And I think it's good for people to to appreciate the biodiversity in the Smokies, to be able to hike down one of our trails and see nothing but native wildflowers in the spring. People who come here from the mid-Atlantic states where their floodplain forests now are completely taken over by garlic mustard and fig buttercup and the, the many invasive species that, that we have in a lot of places, they they really appreciate that we have worked hard to keep those out of the main corridor of the park and that here's a place where you can really see biodiversity and how many of the forests in the eastern United States used to be, but are no longer. It is a showcase. And and by the way, if I'm characterizing it correctly, garlic mustard plant is a real pain on several levels, but including to pull out. It's not easy to just rip it out. It's a, It takes a, a, a certain flick of the wrist to really get it out. So it's a, uh, once it's in, it's uh, it's pretty tough. Yeah, it's one of those plants, if you have a large one, uh, that... If you you might pull like break it off, and it will very quickly grow a new plant from what's left of the roots. It has abundant seeds, and it's a biennial, so it it produces seeds rapidly. It can it can flower and go to seed when it's one inch tall, or it can flower and go to seed when it's four feet tall. Right, <laughs> so it's a real pain. It, yeah, it is, and it is also allelopathic, which means it exudes chemicals from its root systems and leaves that inhibit the growth of other species. So once you have garlic mustard going, your whole soil microflora is changed and so is the plant composition for a very long time. Let's let's get to some of the more happier aspects. Okay. And, and Chris, you just mentioned some of this. So can you talk a little bit about, uh, you just briefly mentioned wildflowers, which is how we fell in love with the park. But of course, there are some very interesting uh, shrubs, edible plants, and again, you have this complete range of biodiversity. So 
maybe an entryway, can you talk a little bit about what are balds, grassy balds, heath balds, and uh, what happens there? And then kind of we can cascade out to broader biodiversity among shrubbery and plants and the rest of the flora. Grassy balds and heath balds are, are two different plant communities. The heath balds are areas that have acidic soil. They may have always had acidic soil, but the types of plants that grow on them, the Ericaceae plants in the heath family, that would be mountain laurel, rhododendron, blueberries, uh, those those sorts of things. Their their leaves are acidic and they produce an acidic soil. The soil tends to be deep and kind of spongy. These areas might have originated from fire, like a, a devastating fire long ago, and the the heath species colonized it and have been able to maintain their own community because the soil is now too acidic and the growth is too dense for other species to come in. They're beautiful, though, especially when they're in bloom. And they do have some smaller understory plants, like the painted trillium, that are adapted to those more acidic Mm -hmm. soils. And because the shrubs are lower growing, they often provide really nice viewpoints for people to look out into other areas of forest and enjoy the view. Um, the grassy bulbs, similarly, we don't really know the origins of the true grassy bulbs. There's some areas in the park that are grassy because the early European settlers grazed their animals there. And those areas are beginning to grow back into forest. There are two grassy bulbs that the park maintains in that state, Andrew's bald and Gregory's bald. Those two were determined for restoration and maintenance in the park's general management plan all the way back in 1982. And partly, part of the reason is because they were documented as being open when the first European surveyors and explorers came through here. And there are even Cherokee legends referring to the grassy bald, like Gregory Bald is the place of the the giant rabbit, a sacred spot. But they were known to be open even in those times pre-European settlement. So they, in particular, have a complex of native plants that is unique. At Gregory Bald, we have the the dwarf gray willow, it's a tiny willow shrub, and we have the four species of hybridizing native azaleas that form a, a color band all the way from white to purple to orange to pink. Right. A gorgeous sight in June when they're all in full bloom. And then, of course, there are the native grasses and sedges that, that compose the, the grassiness of those bulbs. And part of what my crew does is every Every year we kept back encroaching woody vegetation because if if we didn't maintain, if the bulbs weren't maintained in some way, they too would grow back into forest. And we don't know how exactly they were maintained as open previously. It's possible that Native Americans did some burning there so that they were open and were good for hunting grounds. There's Still, research continues into the origin of the grassy vaults, and they extend not not only in the Smokies, but throughout the southern Appalachians. Roan Mountain is a good example to our north in the Cherokee National Forest. 
you mentioned fire, uh, Chris, a few uh-huh. times. So there's, can you talk about the impact of one wildfire on the park and two, the park service and prescribed fire. So clearly this is part of a management strategy you all have. What are, what are some of the reasonings behind that and, and how often does that take place? Well, there there are some forest types that are particularly adapted to fire and, in fact, need fire in order to persist. They're usually pine types. So, for instance, the shortleaf pine-dominated forest research that we've done with the University of Tennessee Department of Geography looking at of fire history, looking at the tree rings and the, the long record of fire return intervals, that would be the frequency with which those forests burned. Those forests tended to have a really fast fire return interval, so it means that they would burn frequently. Not an intense fire, but enough to just keep the the pine regenerating. Some of the pine species require fire in order for their cones to open and seeds to be released. So one area where we've focused prescribed fire effort has been in the the southwestern end of the park where we have these pine-dominated forests so that they can regenerate and persist and the the herbaceous plants, the birds, mammals, even herpetological fauna and insects can can thrive because they're all specially adapted to those types of forests. We've also been doing prescribed burns in Cates Cove where we have native grasses Cades Cove is a 2,000-acre limestone basin that gets 2 million visitors all on its own. It it was partly maintained in an open state by agricultural practices, but the agricultural leases are over now, and the park has begun restoring some of those fields that originally back uh, Pre-European settlement were probably open savanna-like, lots of wetlands that were subsequently ditched and drained by Europeans and even by the Park Service. So we're, we're doing prescribed burns in Cades Cove to restore the native meadows and also to maintain them in an open state without encroaching woody vegetation. So those are the main areas where the park has wanted to do prescribed burns. So, so that's interesting. And I, I've, I have one more question for you, but mm-hmm. just to kind of sum what I'm hearing and, and that this is not at all a, uh, a passive park, that there is active management of the park going on to keep it a show, at least with the, with the forest to keep it a showcase mm-hmm. for the biodiversity. And, uh, I think your average visitors, if they're just going to drive around Cades Cove or camp for a night or two, may not be aware of this. And I think uh, that diversity, and I think I'll I'll name check some of the things you talked about, Cove Hardwood Forest, Spruce Fir Forest, which we talked about, Northern Hardwood Forest, Hemlocks that we talked about, Pine and Oak Forests, and we talked about the balds, uh, grassy and heath balds, and uh, uh, again, with active management by your team, which I'm sure it's not a cast of thousands, so it's really impressive that whatever your numbers are, and in, and you're covering such a you have such a large footprint in in active management. So uh, it just leads to my next and final question: Is there a favorite spot in the park of yours that you would uh, you'd share with us? <laughs> Probably hard to pick since you're uh, you're kind of worried about all these. <laughs> all the different diversity, but uh, I'm going to put you on the spot. Do you have a favorite? Well, I think um, the answer to that question reminds me 
of a question we get frequently, which is sort of like, so when is the peak of the fall color, and when will the rhododendron peak, the the best of the best of. There's so many places in the park that are the best of their kind, right. and that you want to appreciate for what they are. So on any given day, I I think it's a great day when I go out anywhere in the park and I learn something new or I see something I hadn't seen before. Those are my favorite places. So, so you're still. I have I have memories. I I started coming. My parents brought me to the park when I was just like ten to go to drive around Cades Cove, and I went. To, I'm from East Tennessee. I went to the University of Tennessee, so I have decades of great memories of the Smokies, and they're all great. <laughs> so, uh, so that's, a, that's a, look. That's a great answer, and uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be impolite and ask you your age, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say you're older than ten. So you've been coming to the park <laughs> since you've been ten, um, and, you're, and you're still surprised uh, when you when even working in the park. That's actually that's actually very affirming. We started off with uh, something very disconcerting in terms of the invasive species, and and we're ending on a very affirming note. Well, that's true, and um, also because of the age that I am, I got to see the Fraser fir forest before it was decimated by also Molyadelgid. And I got to spend a lot of time in the old growth hemlock forest before it was hit by hemlock Molyadelgid. So one of my coworkers has has a little boy that's about 10 now, and he said, I, I want my son to be able to see hemlocks. I didn't get to see the chestnut forest, and he, and he didn't, neither did I, but we would like for future generations to be able to see at least representatives of the great forest that we inherited. Well, Chris, thanks to your and your team's work, um, maybe that 10-year-old boy, he's going he's gonna to have that chance. <laughs> so thank you very much for everything you're doing, and uh, Thank you for a great sure. conversation and a great education today. So, again, okay. Chris Johnson, Supervisory Forester, Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Thank you, Chris. Okay, you're welcome. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. As always, show notes and links to resources for this episode may be found on our website, everybodysnationalparks.com. While there, please consider clicking on Support Our Show. You may find the podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. If you like the show, write a review and please tell your friends. You may also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or send us your comments at everybody'snationalparks.com forward slash contact. We love to hear from you from the parks you are visiting, so please tag us at hashtag everybody's national parks. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.